dealing with. Before I get there, though, I found a hymn. I think it's written around the 1860s, 70s, on this Labor Day weekend. Awful lot of talk of, in Philly, we have the, the big Labor Day concerts and all this other kind of stuff, and so you don't dare try and drive downtown. Um, picnics, um, all, all kinds of stuff. Um, but just listen to this as I share it with you. Come, labor on. Who dares stand idle on the harvest plain while all around us waves the golden grain? And to each servant does the master say, go work today. Come, labor on. Come, the high calling angels cannot share to young and old gospel gladness bear. Redeem the time. It's hours too swiftly fly. The night draws nigh. Come, labor on. Cast off all gloomy doubt and faithless fear. No arms so weak, but may do service here. Though feeble agents, may we all fulfill God's righteous will. Come, labor on. No time to rest till glows the western sky, till the long shadows o'er our pathway lie, and a glad sound comes with the setting sun. Well done, well done. Not much time, but the Lord has called us to such. As we begin a new study in this book of James, I trust that it'll be one that as we go through it in the weeks and months ahead, it'll be one that you'll find some really unique qualities. Uh, it's been called the New Testament book of Proverbs. It's a practical book, as you'll see in many ways. Actually, it's called a practical guide for Christian living. Practical is good, isn't it? You know, I like practical. The theoretical aspects of life can sometimes be difficult to digest. But when I hear practical, I say, hmm, that's, that's nice, that's good. But let me warn you, though, that practical Christian living is still Christian living. Practical or not, however, it's labeled, it's still Christian living, and you'll see that as we continue through this book. James is unique in certain areas. The ISBE, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, gives us some Initial thoughts that make it unique, we never would have thought about it. He says, there is no mention of the incarnation or the resurrection. That kind of takes an unusual one. Nothing about Christ's birth or of his resurrection. The word gospel does not occur in this epistle. There is no suggestion that the Messiah has appeared and presentation of the possibility of redemption through him. It's different, unusual in that sense when you cut those pieces out. Yet, you always remember that the Spirit of God guided the hand of the author in order that it might present God's truth to those people in this particular time and for us today. One other point to mention is that I find many familiar verses in James a lot of them have been sermons preached on a particular verse or um, Sunday school lessons or Bible studies or witnessing uh, 
uh, verses. And you'll find some as you go along and say, wow, I'd like that verse. I memorized that years ago. I've, I've really, that's been one of my, it's underlined in my Bible, highlighted, you know. But don't allow the familiarity with any verse in James or in any part of the scripture to take you away from digging further. Familiarity with things in God's word sometimes causes me to say, yeah, yeah I've heard that before. Yeah. No, don't. It's a mind filled with treasure. Dig. Allow the Spirit of God to work as we take this book piece by piece. James chapter 1, I'll just be reading the first 12 verses. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed, for let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth it. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Shall we pray? Our gracious God, we're thankful for your known presence, felt presence here today. We understand your word invites us to come and to dine at your table, to allow your word to be that uh, banquet which will feed our hungry souls. Yet, Father, we need to understand <clears throat> that we are hungry, <clears throat> that the, the yearnings and the desires that we have um, can only be satisfied by your hand. We thank you, Father, for this, <clears throat> this epistle. Thank you for its truth. And thank you for the privilege that we have to come and sit before it and <clears throat> digest it, to find nutrition in it, and that your spirit would help us in receiving it and burying it in our hearts and making application uh, throughout life. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> No, sweetheart, I don't need a cough drop or anything. After years of practice, I know she's thinking, and I feel those waves coming. She's... We begin by asking, who wrote the book of James? That's like, who's buried in Grant's tomb, you know? <laughs> well, it's obvious it's James. And we come to the, the James, though, and the question comes, it's a, 
uh, Hebrew, Greek, uh, anglicized word for Jacob. So his name is really Jacob. But there are three main characters in the New Testament. You could say, oh, he could be the author. He could be, he could be the author. Um, one is James, the son of Zebedee, who's a brother of, anybody know? An apostle, John. He's John's brother. Then there was James, the son of Alphaeus, who was also a disciple of Jesus. And then there was James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was not one of the twelve. Those are the three main characters that the New Testament presents to us as the authors. And for all study and all digestion of all of the facts who put it together, for the most part, there is common understanding that it was James, the half-brother of Jesus. We could say that uh, you would know him. Uh, Brother Tim had gone through the uh, book of Acts, past, this, uh, James, or past Acts 15, where we find James found as the, uh, the moderator of this great uh, council that was held in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, he was really the first pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, a man respected, apparently, being made in that position. And you could do a lot more study on it, but I think for our case, for our purposes, we'll simply leave it with that. Next we ask, who is James writing to? What does verse 1 say? James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad greeting. Now, if you read your New Testament, you say, that's different. He's not writing to a church. He's not writing to the Philippians or the Thessalonians. He's not writing to an individual. He's not writing to Timothy or, or, or others, individuals. But he's writing to a collection, a general group of people, not in a specific area, but a general epistle to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. And that's kind of a brief introduction. When you read your New Testament, you see lots of those epistles. They spend a lot of time in intro. You know, who am I? Why am I writing? Who's with me? And so forth. But here he gets right to the point. I'm writing to you, Jews, who were part of the diaspora, those Jews who, because of persecution, were forced out. Um, the scattering abroad, uh, probably a lot of them from Nero, but even other persecutions at a time. Leave the camp of Israel and, and dwell amongst the, the Gentiles. Um, that was the in, intended audience. But not only were these of a Jewish nature, they're Christians. James 2.1, he writes, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with the respect of persons. So more importantly, which links us with us, they are Jewish heritage, but they were believers. First century believers, brand new believers, we would say. And I say that's where we come in. That's where the practicality touches our life. That's where I say, well, that, that draws my attention. James writes to his audience and he urges them to live what they say they believed. No longer of the old Jewish nature, but he says, now I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and, and this is brand new to me. They didn't have a New Testament to go through. And so he says, you, you have follow those things which you say you are. You do the works of those things which you say you are as a believer. James says to these Christians, and encourages them to continue growing in this new Christian faith. And he stresses actions, good works, will naturally follow 
what the Holy Spirit has done in their lives. That's a natural part, the fruit that's being produced out of life. Say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I follow after him. He's my savior. Therefore, certain things ought to be produced. Certain things ought to be evident. It's a picture of a right relationship between faith and works. What we say we believe and what we do. And I think for us that hits the nail right on the head. You don't have to go too far, visit too many churches, to find out saying I'm a believer in Jesus Christ or I follow Christ or be on the radio or go on the internet and say this is a Christian church and yet you, you, you analyze what they believe in their works and their actions and you say, boy, that doesn't make sense. The epitome of hypocrisy. They are not believing and acting in the same fashion. It's totally opposite. And so I think what James was dealing with was a different fashion, but the same evidence that was part of life. And this is what makes it important for us in our day. Now we have some of the background. And let's see what he comes to first, what is on James' heart. And again, I draw your attention to the fact that in these letters that we see in our New Testament, there is a longer introduction, and then almost always the first topic they get to is the most important. I don't know, I'm not going to ask if any of you still write letters, you know. That's kind of, a, kind of a bygone thing. But if we wrote letters, maybe an email, you know. The things that we put in first are the things that draw my heart's attention right away. This is what I want you to read. And then later on, maybe lesser and lesser and lesser and lesser things. But right away. So here he's presenting what's really upon his heart. Verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. That's a hard verse for the casual reader, isn't it? Count it all joy when you're faced with, when part of your life is an assortment, a variety of trials and tribulations. Is he crazy? (laughs) Happy for trials? Are you kidding me? Trials are not situations that produce joy by their general nature. You've all experienced them, and maybe some more recently than others, and if you haven't, I don't know where you've been living, but it's part of what it is. Ask anybody. Our own experience reveals that trials are difficult and painful, but they exist for a purpose. They exist for a purpose. Trials have the potential of producing something good in us, and therefore, for that reason, we rejoice in it. I'm going through this because God's hand is upon me, and I will work with it or walk with it because there is a purpose in it. There is a definite direction that God is having, so I rejoice in it. For us, I think this is an advantage, knowing the bigger picture, that we consider trials as something to rejoice in. Now you go back to the time that James was living, and he's talking to these Jewish Christians, and he's urging them to change their pattern of thinking. Again, this is not commonplace for mankind. And as they are new believers in Christ, all of a sudden trials come to them and they are probably thinking, what did I do wrong? Why is God angry with me? Why are these trials and troubles happening to me? Why, God, is this happening to me? There's often an attitude of dread, an attitude of confusion, an attitude of shaking of the fist or just collapsing. We've been there. 
when a trial comes, depending on the severity and depending upon the frequency of it. James says, instead, though, change our attitude to one of expectation, of faith, of trust, and even of joy. That's contrary to the way we've grown up. It's contrary to the old nature. But that's what he's presenting unto these people and presenting unto us. The reality is that trials and testings are opportunities to joyfully mature into Christ-likeness. It brings me out of the place that I had been as an old man, the old nature, and brings me closer to Christ because this trial is a process working in my life. King James calls it diverse temptations. In reality, he's suggesting strongly there's an assortment, a variety of afflictions and persecutions and trials of any kind. And when you think about the time that they were living in, persecutions had already occurred within Jerusalem. Some, again, if as late as the time of Nero, uh, severe persecutions. And James writes to those who are not in Jerusalem, but those who are in the outer reaches, the, the, the 12 tribes scattered. He says, I know these things are going to come to you too. Bank on it. Bank on it. Not because of who the Romans were, or not because of the unbelieving Jews, but because of the nature of the Christian walk in the world in which they lived. I'd say this ought to catch our attention. Go online and look up Voice of the Martyrs or Open Doors. or an assortment of other websites that speak of persecution that's ongoing today. Let me share a couple paragraphs. A woman in India watches her sister dragged off by Hindu nationalists. She doesn't know if she'll see her sister again, dead or alive. A man in North Korea is in prison. He's shaken, wakened and being beaten unconscious, the beatings are again and again and again. A woman in Nigeria runs for her life. She has escaped the Boko Haram, who kidnapped her. She is pregnant, and when she returns home, her community rejects her and the baby she carries. A group of children laughing and talking as they come down from the church's sanctuary after eating together, Instantly, many of them are killed by a bomb blast. It's Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka. The stories are stories without names, but the principles and the truths are there all the time. Over 360 million Christians living in places where they experienced high levels of persecution and discrimination last year. 360 million. Last year also, 5,898 Christians were killed for their faith, and these are those who are known. 5,110 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. 4,765 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. Not very pleasant. And again, we were thankful for the things that we have in our country, but brethren, think it not that it can't or won't happen here someday. And I'm not referring to who sits on the throne in Washington or in Annapolis or in Harrisburg. I'm talking about the very nature of the world in which we live. The attitude that those have of Christ and hence of his people. Jesus' own words, if the world hates you, 
ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If he were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. James is spot on. Sometimes we presume because we are this or that or in this place or that place that we are exempt or we ought to be exempt. But it's the nature of the world in which we live in that persecution happens. They hate Christ. They hate those who love Christ simply because of the nature that they are born with. We at one time had been amongst those and had the same attitudes. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse afflictions, trials, even persecutions. Knowing this, and this follows it, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Did you note how he brought those two principles together? Count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith, that's linked to the trials that he mentions there in the beginning. The trying of my faith is assorted, various persecutions, attacks, trials, and tribulations. That's what has linked it together. They are part of trials. Those things work of patience. Such things are not only permitted in our life, but they are used by God to mold us, to shape us, to fashion our thinking to work on my heart, to work on my eyes and my ears, to work on my feet and my hands, the involvement of me and my whole being. So don't be discouraged or bringing you down because understand that it is a loving father who has allowed and who has permitted trials and tribulations in your life for your good, for his glory. Don't shake your fist at him and say, Lord, I don't understand it and I don't know why, but you're allowing, you're permitting this, and I'm counting it as a joy because you're making me like Jesus Christ, your son, my savior. But the outcome that James mentions is what? When you go into the hospital, do you become a patient, but a different kind of patience, Okay. The outcome of these things produces patience in us. Patience is much more than just waiting around. Patience is the capacity to endure, to get through it, to see our way past each trial. One author wrote, it is by suffering that one learns how to suffer, that is, to be patient. And if we go to the practical experience, we are pretty certain to find that the most patient Christians is the one who has suffered the most. And I'm not going to do surveys with people and write them and ask them and so forth, but I've seen those situations. As years go on, as, as struggles in ministries go on, as life intends to just bottom people out, you'll find them, you know, uh, just rejoicing that they are trusting in the Lord to see that end through. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that. We think of examples in scripture. Did Job learn patience, the capacity to endure by his prosperity? 
read that early couple chapters, and here's a man, probably the richest man, uh, in, in, at least in that region at his time. You know? He had everything. But his ability to learn patience uh, came through the trials and tribulations of life. A couple of weeks ago, caught on the news, there was a family that went down to Rehoboth Beach in Delaware, um, had a, went out to a restaurant, and I'm fairly sure it was, it was an appetizer, but the dad ordered some clams, not oysters, but clams, and he popped one open, and there was a pink pearl in it. I thought, oh, you know, this is neat. And he was just flabbergasted, uh, haven't found a, an update as far as what it was worth or so forth, but he says it's not unusual. All mollusks can produce pearls, and all it takes is a grain of sand that's ingested in their time of eating, and that grain of sand becomes an irritant. And they're able to, ex to, to put on some, some fluid or whatever it is, excrete some type of, of stuff, and it goes around that irritant and covers it up, and it continues to grow and grow and grow. And obviously those pearls, uh, uh, oyster pearls or, or clam pearls, can be of different colors and different shapes and so forth, but they cover up, they produce something beautiful out of that irritant. I sometimes think that tribulations and trials and afflictions become spiritual irritants. You know. And they can rub you raw. And for those clams and oysters and mollusks and so forth, they know their insides are being just rubbed away. But it ends up that it produces something great. And by the grace of God, we are enabled to remain faithful. And such produces patience, the ability to wait on the Lord, to wait on the Lord. Like we talked the other week about how often, it's 100 and, I think it's 140 sometimes mentioned in the Old Testament, wait on the Lord. You know. Why? Because we're an impatient people. We're here and now type of things. I want to see. I want to be able to handle it. And God all along says, no, this is my situation and you are my children and we're going to work it out my way and my time. So because of that, look at verse 4. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Let perseverance finish its work so that you can be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Allow it. Allow it. The pearl doesn't develop if all of a sudden we just want to pull it out and get rid of it, you know. It has to be developed and under the strains and, and directions of Almighty God. God intends for trials to test our faith and produce spiritual perseverance. They're like the athlete. Um, college football started again, and, and NFL is going to start pretty soon. And they see these guys, and they're just massive. And how they're out there, I was watching a game yesterday, and they're 300 and some pounds, and they're playing down in Mississippi, and it's hot. And, you know, how do they continue to run back and forth and do all of this? Because under the, the preparation, they know they have to go through trials and, and struggles and, and in order to be sustained under that 60 minutes or however long they're out there playing. Spiritually, it's the same thing. God brings us through these challenges day by day, week by week, month after month, and they are workouts for us. 
if we were to walk through life on easy street, never facing hardships of life, never facing the struggles that God would permit in us, our Christian character would remain untested and underdeveloped. Babes in Christ, and you read through the New Testament and find how often the, the author, Paul or Peter, speaks of those people as babes in Christ. They're, they're mature. They're still on the milk of the word and haven't developed into the meat. Why? Probably because they haven't allowed the perseverance to see through. Patience that God is producing within their lives. Stamina. Listen to words of Paul in Romans 5. And I think Paul uh, knew and had read James' letter. He says, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. Similar to James, isn't it? We glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulations worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Paul says there's a development here. It begins with the trials and tribulations, and it ends up in the glory of God. And how do I get from A to B? Well, I have to go through all of these, and one builds upon the other, and the other, and the other, and the other. And that's the development that the Spirit of God has within us. We can count it all joy and trials because of the very thing that we now dread, depending upon God completely. That's a hard thought. I have to trust God for this completely? Peter says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, great trials, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it is tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Peter says, you, saints, and they were under the, 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 the thumb of Nero. He says, you saints are going through these things, but be patient. Because these trials and tribulations, although the reward or the ending may not be here on this earth, and they probably won't be, will be seen to the praise and glory of God at his appearing. James encourages Christians to embrace trials, not for what they presently are. You know, I'm going through a trial right now. Yes, I'm happy for that. You know, there's something wrong with you, buddy. You know. But he's saying rejoice in them because of the result that God is going to bring about. The athlete, who, again, who works his hardest, and he's not rejoicing because his muscles ache and he's just feeling terrible. He's rejoicing because when it comes to game time or at the end of the season, he says, I went through all of this in order to win. And so the victory that we have in Christ is where we're going. Do you remember when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers? Beautiful number of, of chapters there in Genesis describing these uh, lifetime of experiences. At the time, I really think that Joseph never could have imagined the marvelous outcome that he would have had in his life through all of the things that he was going through. 
He couldn't imagine what, what God was doing through him in those years of suffering and perseverance. Miserable treatment he received from his brothers. The trials because of Potiphar's wife. The years he spent in prison thinking that somebody would hear him and nobody responded to his pleas only until the time came about that God had him released. His faith was tested through trials and perseverance finished its work. And only triumphantly that he understand God's intended purpose when he was able to come to the near the end of, of, of the chapter and bring it out even before his brothers. He said, you thought it thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. He says, the intent of what you had determined, predetermined to do to me. And he could have said that to Potiphar's wife or to those who were in prison. And so of all the intentions that you had, God used all of those things, those trials. And I don't know how far he understood it himself through all of these things. But, but he says, at the end here, he says, I can look back and clearly see the thread that was tying it all together that God meant it for good. And you may not understand it today or tomorrow or next week. Why is this happening to me? Or the events that are going to be coming up this coming year or the next five years or the next 10 years. But it doesn't matter because it's there we are to persevere. James 1.4 says, but let patience have her perfect work that she may be perfect, complete, entire, wanting nothing. And it says that a believer who perseveres these trials is made perfect. Not perfection, <laughs> not perfection at all, but he's describing a picture of the believer having a joyful outlook, trusting that God will accomplish his good purpose in him and bring him to a fuller maturity each day. I know the trials that I'm going through now, I couldn't have handled a year ago or a month ago, you know. Each one of us finds a progression as we develop along being patiently trusting in God and saying, I got through this, not because I was smarter or not because I could pay this or not because I could do this, but I got through it by the grace of God and then it goes to the next level and then the next level. But it only comes about as I trust and rely upon him. And we may not necessarily see, again, Joseph's aha moment, you know, Guys, all of this happened all these years. What you meant for evil, God meant it for good. And we may not see that until we get to glory. But it is a promise that James is providing for them. Count it all joy. Again, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. None of us do. Uh, prayer list, well, wherever my bulletin is. The prayer list is on there. And you say, well, we've been praying for these people, and sometimes you're not going to see an answer to that, at least not in the way that you think. You know. uh, all of us, there's, without exception, uh, the day after we were born, we're all falling apart. You know, We continue to grow, and then face it, well, I'm 40 coming up. It's all downhill after 40. You know? You know, well, it's all downhill after, we're, after we start out. You know? But that's where it shows. I can't make it on my own, Lord. You know, be patient. The trials of life develop us and bring us through these times that God is glorified. Let's pray.
Father, seal upon our hearts truths that um, we've not necessarily understood before or could not grasp or things that we've uh, handled before but have just kind of set them aside. Seal upon our hearts the values of the words the Spirit of God brought to James in order that those first century believers would know that they are special and precious and a loving God had permitted trials in their lives in order that he himself would be honored and glorified for all eternity and that those people would develop, that they would find themselves walking more faithfully in a mature attitude towards their fellow man and before their holy God. Lord, we confess that we know not much, but we do know who you are and what you've promised and what you will provide. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.